Scripture this morning is from Genesis chapter 15, verses 17 through 18. And God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, and from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The word of the Lord. Well, that's a strange story. You're listening to that story. That's a weird one. We're going to try to unpack it this morning a little bit. I hope that when you leave here, maybe we have a a little better sense of what's going on with that. We are in a series on the book of Genesis, specifically looking at Abraham, what God tells us about journeying to places unknown, to lands that you don't know where you're going. It's been, it's been said that the, uh, the story of Abraham can be described as God saying, I'm going to send you out. And Abram says, where? And God says, I'll tell you later, just go. And then he says, I'm going to give you a land. And Abram says, what land? And he says, I'll tell you later, just wander. And he says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abram says, how? God says, I'll tell you later, just trust and wait. Finally, he gets a son. God says, kill him. And he says, why? And he says, I'll tell you later, just obey. If you want to summate Abram's life, this is a man who was put in positions of having to do things that he had really no understanding of why he was doing. You and I in the Christian life are faced with a lot of times where God just says, believe it, do it. Chapter 15 is one of the pivotal chapters in all of Scripture. It's the key that Paul refers to over and over again, where Abram simply takes God at his word. We ended last week looking at this verse. Chapter 15, if you've got your Bible. Genesis 15, verse 6. Where basically we strip away any biblical language, he believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness, let's just say he took God at his word. God said it and he said, I believe it. Something Abram didn't understand at that moment happened to him and he was 
made right with God. Paul's going to pick up on this, and we'll talk about it later. But this idea of Abram in this covenant began back in the 12th chapter, chapter 12, 1 through 3, where the Lord says to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, so you'll be a blessing. So this covenant begins then, where he just says, go, and then I'll bless you. Now, God's revealing more of this covenant in chapter 15. So, let's start there, beginning, I'm going to, if again, if you have your Bible, open to chapter 15, we're going to be sitting in here, most of here this morning, though skipping around to a few other books of the Bible. So, first thing God says to Abram in in verse 1 is, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, your reward shall be very great. We talked about last week the way Abram was in a war to rescue Lot after they'd divided into their two shepherding groups had divided so that they each had land appropriate for their herds. Lot, by God's sovereignty and providence, leaves the promised land, leaving it for Abram as was his inheritance. But Lot gets caught up in a war. Abram, as a sheik or a whatever you want to call him, a, a nomad, a, a patriarch, has some uh, power and an army, and he goes and he helps rescue Lot from those who had snared him. And part of that was Abram received spoils of war. And he gives some of that in submission to Melchizedek, this mysterious figure we talked about last week, foreshadowing our own priest-king. But he also decides not to take what was what Sodom, the king of Sodom, had offered him as the spoils of war, saying, I don't want there to ever be a possibility that you say later on, you made me rich. I'm going to trust in the Lord for my inheritance. And so we pick up on that in verse 1, where Abram is promised by God, I am your defender, your shield. And your reward will be very great. The literal Hebrew there says reward, it's the word for wages. Your pay is going to be big, very. That's how the way it looks. Wages, big, very. So God says, I am going to provide for you, and I'm going to be your reward. Sense again that Abram's going to try to understand how this is going to be because God's made a promise, but Abram doesn't see how it's going to come about. So in verse 2, he asks a very reasonable question. Lord, what will you give me? Or basically, how is this going to happen? Remember, we all we know of Sarai at this point, his wife, is that she's barren. They're unable to have children. So Abram offers a very reasonable way workaround for God. Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Culturally, that's how you would have passed your goods, your flocks, to a trusted servant, basically someone you almost adopted as a son. But uh, Abram says, Behold, you have given me no offspring, so this member of my household will be my heir. The word of the Lord says, No, 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 no. This man shall not be your heir. doesn't say that actually in the, in the Hebrew, but it's just, No. The man will not be your heir, your very own son, or that which will come out of you will be your heir. God reiterates this promise that it's going to have to be what we call a God thing. 
There are times in our life, in this part of the promise, there's two parts of the covenant here. There's going to be people coming out of Abraham to inhabit the land, and there's going to be a land for the people to inhabit. The first one is something Abram can't do anything about except wait. And you say, well, okay, that's pretty easy. Really? You tried waiting a lot? Waiting is not easy, especially with hope. We were, Nancy and I were having a discussion this week, and, you know, we're, we're in the process now. Many of you know it's no secret that our, our lease here runs for another year, and then, depending on, we don't know what's happening with this building, and part of my reason for preaching this, this message is in Genesis to myself of, I don't know where we'll be. We may be a wandering tent people. I don't know, you know, but this, Facility's been wonderful, and but God may have something else for us. We don't know. We just don't know. It's unclear because there's a date set. And we also, you know, we're looking for a youth minister and children's minister. Nancy's been very ably ministering to our youth for many years. And and facing a lot of unknowns in my, you know, this is my work as well as my calling. And, you know, it is so easy to wait with this attitude as I was this week of, it's not going to work out very well. I don't know how we're going to do it. I don't know. We probably will have to go to some crummy building somewhere. I don't know whoever finding youth pastor as good as you, honey. I didn't quite say it like that, but that was sort of my attitude. And she very rightly said, wow, that's not very faithful. Faithful. I was like, yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're not the pastor. It's like, no, it's, it's hard for me. She says it's hard for me to step down. But this is our lot of waiting is we can wait with the attitude of it's all going to crumble down, the Eeyore waiting style, it will never work. (laughs) Or we wait with the attitude of joyful, hopeful expectation that the God who promised is a God who is faithful to His promises. You think that's easy? Lead the way. Because when we're facing a situation where you're barren and God's promised you a child and you don't see any way that this promise is going to come out and yet to wait with hope, to keep reminding yourself of eternal truth when temporal things say no way, sometimes you reach the end and you just have to say, okay, God, it's up to you. Nancy and I are watching the, the old movie, The African Queen, this week. Great movie. Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn. They're sailing this boat, the African Queen, down to try to help sink a German ship. And they have all these adventures to get to the end of the river, which is not navigable, they think, but they make it over waterfalls and all the, the terrors of that. And they are finally they get to the bottom of the river and they don't know which way to go. And it's just... They just have no idea, and they just say, well, let's try one way, it's as good as the other, and the boat gets stuck at the end, and they have no strength left. And Catherine Hepburn kneels down and prays and says, God, we we think we've done, basically I'm paraphrasing, but we think we've done what you wanted us to do. We've run our race, we're done, we have no strength left. And they fall asleep thinking they'll die in the boat. And the rains come in another part of the upland, and when they wake up, the boat's been lifted up, and it's been carried to the lake, which was only just over the ridge. They couldn't see it. 
they got 99.9% of the way there and they lost their strength, but the rains take them over. And sometimes there's a place where the Holy Spirit has got to simply take us where your strength isn't enough. And that's the gospel, is that your strength won't get you to heaven. It won't get you to Christ. Abram believes God, and all of a sudden his standing is counted as righteousness. Paul comments on this. If you've got your Bible and want to turn to Romans 4, Paul uses this passage in trying to explain about how we're justified or made right with God as the, we're celebrating the 500th year of the Reformation coming in October. This was pivotal verse, pivotal key verses in Romans that awakened Martin Luther. For what does the Scripture say? Romans 4, 3. Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages aren't counted as a gift, but as his due. Remember the wages? Your wages I'm going to pay, says the Lord. Very great wages. Not wages you've earned, Abram, but wages I'll give to you because you took me at your word. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Second promise. It's not just got to be a God thing. It's also now a land for these people to get into. And that's something Abram could do something about. He could take the land. He could begin to prepare that. But God says, wait, this is not what you think it's going to be. And now we get to this story, which which is a it's a weird one. And it's weird because we don't live in that culture in that time. But let me try to unpack it. God promises him, and he says, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, verse 7 of Genesis 15. And he says, Lord God, how am I to know that you will possess it? This is, the Christian life is full of, Lord, how, how am I to know? How am I to know you and that you'll come through? How am I to know me that I won't fall short? How, how can I know this? And so then we have this story that just seems so strange to our ears. Lord God, how am I to know? God says, bring me these animals. We'll cut them in half. We'll walk. What? 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 Okay. These days when you want to, all right, this is, this is what we had to sign when we bought our house. Right? Any bought a house lately? We got a hundred pages of government regulations Signed, you know how many times you have to sign, they bring their own pens because your pens run out of ink, the first pen runs out of ink as you're signing, because this is what, this is what happens. We understand that any of you have refied a house or bought a house, you understand, basically you're signing your children, your life away, and, and these hundred pages signify that a contract is being done, but you aren't getting that house if you aren't signing this. Came across a number of years ago, my my grandfather and grandmother bought a house in Newburyport, Massachusetts in 1920. It was one page and about half, half a page on it where the bank president said, Claude, I know you're a good man. If you'll, you know, for X amount of money, I know you'll pay me back by this date. Sign, bank president, you sign it. It was amazing. <laughs> and basically, I'll see you at the Rotary Club Tuesday night. Because there was relationship and they knew each other, it was did done differently. But that in that day, what do you do? When, when you sign a deal, you used to say a handshake. Your word is your bond. What's the covenant that keeps the contract in our day and age square? 
When the government gets involved, it becomes more paperwork, right? For good or for ill, it just does. When I was young, all you did was spit into your hand and shake, and that was, that was a real, you really meant it then at about six years old. This is how contracts were done. Other times in Scripture, you took off a shoe. We see that in the book of Ruth. That was the way. It sounds weird to us, but that's the way they knew a contract was done. Turn to uh, Jeremiah 34, if you've got your Bible. We'll, we'll look. There's not too much in literature outside the Scripture. There's not too much about it. A little bit about this practice. But they took seriously covenants. None of this wimpy handshake stuff. This is, you make a covenant contract with me, we're going to act out what's going to happen if you don't come through on the contract. Okay, so here's how it goes. Let's look at Genesis, uh, Jeremiah 34, 18. This is the Lord speaking, and he refers to this practice. The Lord says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of my covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf they cut in two and passed between its parts. Basically, you don't come through with your end of the deal, you're cursed, you're destroyed. We're serious about that. You, know, you want to see some contracts being obeyed. You want to see people not, you know, getting out of the contract. Let's, you know, split something in half and say, you're welcome to do this to me if I don't come through for you. A little bit different, isn't it? So, well, what do we have? He says, okay, I'm going to take through and the sun comes down. Verse 12 of Genesis 15. Deep sleep falls on Abram. This whole thing is a vision we know from verse 1 of chapter 15. Abram's having a vision as God is interacting with him. Now it seems something along the lines of a deep sleep, and dreadful great darkness falls upon him, this dread in his soul. The Lord says to Abram, know for certain, and here's the promise of the land begun to be explained. Your offspring will be sojourners in the land that isn't theirs. Remember, Abram's not getting any of this land. None of the land will be his. We know that from Hebrews. A land that is not theirs, they will be afflicted for 400 years, talking about the Egyptian captivity. But I'll bring great judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So he's telling him the land is coming, but it's going to be 400 years in the future. The promise is real, but it's not in your timetable. Talked about last week, I'm sure from Abram's perspective, there's part of him that says, yeah, great promise, God. 400 years? God doesn't see like we see, because look at what he says in verse 15. As for you, Abram, you shall go back to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried in a good old age. And they, your descendants, will come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And that's, that's something else altogether. So, 17, when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now those words... The imagery and the words used really seem to indicate it's just one thing. It's just a, uh, it's a flaming 
pot with a torch coming out of it, not two different things. But it's the same words used as when the smoke and the light that was on Mount Sinai, the presence of God there, also where there was a cloud by day and a fire by night as they're being led from Egypt. And and that same words are used of this is the presence of God. There's no mistaking what he's trying to say is this is God's presence going before them in, in between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Listen to that. Up till this time, the promises had been made, but no oath or covenant had been made. This was the ratification of the covenant. Abram had trusted God, and now the covenant is made. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, promising him the land to his offspring. So, Lord... Remember his question, how can I know? And God says, let's make a contract. Let's make a covenant. They didn't do paperwork. They split animals and they walked between them. Now I want you to notice something. In covenants of that day, vassals and lords, greater and lesser, would make covenants and both parties would pass through and the lesser in particular, the one who was going to be the servant of the Lord would have to pass through and swear allegiance, swear loyalty. It was a covenant of two people. Do you notice in this covenant only one person walks through? Remember what the covenant means. If I don't come through, then let a curse fall on me. Let let me be torn apart. Who passes through this? When the sun had gone down, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. This is a unilateral covenant. This is a covenant that says, Abram, you've trusted and believed in my word. You've taken me at my word. I'm committing myself to you. It's not up to your righteousness. This isn't the Mosaic covenant where I bless you if you do well and I don't. There are covenants that are dependent. This one's not. He says there's going to be a curse that falls upon and being torn apart. Somebody's going to have to pay if there's sin. Your salvation is not a cooperative effort between you and God. God promises your salvation is secure if you take Him at His word. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to decide and meet some level of standard of expectation. He says, if you believe me at my word and take me at my word, I do all the rest of the work. I do the work. It's all me. So God takes the curse of the covenant on Himself. Mark 15, 33, because this is in Genesis 15. We're going to see in Mark 15 just a second. This is really the first presentation of the gospel, what we've just read. This strange story that you see and you think animals split apart, smoking torches. This is really the first time the gospel is explained. Mark 15, 33, at the sixth hour, darkness comes upon the whole land. As darkness had fallen in Genesis 15, And then at the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Lord, 
Why have you forsaken me? Why have you cut me off? Because you see, Jesus Himself walks through that place where the curse is and He bears the curse because sin carries a curse. You and I live under the curse of sin. We were born as Adam's race and every one of us is infected with the virus. And we want to somehow cleanse ourselves from that and people cleanse themselves or try in all sorts of ways and it doesn't work. Isaiah 53, verse 8. Isaiah, talking about the Messiah, says, He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. I want to look at one final verse. Hebrews chapter 6. If you have your Bible, open to Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I will bless you and multiply you. This is the covenant we're dealing with. And Abraham patiently waited. Remember the first part, it's got to be a God thing. He patiently waits and finally obtains the promise. Verse 18, Start with verse 17. So when God desired to show convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. That's what we're talking about, this oath. Two unchangeable things, God's word, his promise, and his purpose in this oath. By these two unchangeable things, verse 18, it's impossible to God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Do you remember that hope that we've got to trust in when it seems like there's barrenness? The hope of the promise of the child? We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. I'm not a sailor. I hate, it terrifies me to think about sailing. My uncle liked to sail. He'd keep an anchor in his boat. The one thing he always told me was, make sure the rope on your anchor is longer than the channel of the water because an anchor does you no good if you're just dragging it in the water. It's got to be fixed in something secure. You've got to drop your anchor where the boat's not going to be dragged around. What the Bible says is this. Look at this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What is this? The hope and promise that our God does not lie, that His promises are true, that even when there's barrenness, that His promise of a child is coming, and even when there's no land to be seen, and you think, well, I'm going to die before I see the promise. He says, that doesn't make my promise untrue. It just means you're going to die. I don't know about you, but I need an anchor for my soul because this world is filled with things that make me feel like my anchor is being dragged in the water. It doesn't take me long to read the news or to see things around me and think there's so much that provides no security for me.
God says, believe me, take me at my word, trust in my promises, and there will be an anchor for your soul so that it's inside the veil. You know what's inside the veil, don't you? The presence, the living presence of God. If you trust in religiosity, if you trust in tradition, it's not inside the veil. That's man's stuff. The living presence of a living God who changes lives lives inside the veil and that veil's been torn apart now and we can see clearly because the veil was his flesh it says and now we see him face to face not yet physically that'll come when he returns or we go to him if you don't know the one who passed between and made the contract and made the covenant and has done everything necessary for you to not only come to Him and trust in Him, but also to live for Him. Because what we've begun by the Spirit and salvation, we can't complete, it says, in Genesis in Galatians 3, in the flesh. And Paul says the reason we can't even live after our salvation, we can't live. He says, you know what he banks on? Galatians 3.6. Because remember Abraham, he says, he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He goes back to that verse and he says, that's why you need as Christians to walk in the power of the Spirit even as you trusted Him for your salvation. Bank on His promises. They're, they're secure and the wages are very, very high. Exceedingly great. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for promises that are precious to us, great and precious and secure. Lord, we see through a glass dimly and we look this side of heaven and it can often seem tumultuous. We often don't see how things are going to work out. Certainly not in my timetable or our timetable. But Lord, You've called us to wait with a song in the night, to wait with expectancy. When we don't know where the next meeting place is or the next staff is, where we don't know where the next paycheck is coming from, where we don't know Lord, where we'll find strength to continue in a relationship You've called us to when we don't know how we'll find the reserves to walk in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We just we ask, Lord, how can these things be? And then You demonstrate that You have provided all that we need. You have already walked between the pieces, Lord. You have already set Yourself as the One who guarantees that which You've promised. Lord, how miraculous it is that You, the promiser, also are the ones that ends up being the guarantor for the promises. You back up Your own loan, Lord. So Father, help us to trust You. Lord, so that we can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can walk building Your kingdom in our hearts, in our homes, in our city, in our nation. Lord, how we need to build Your kingdom, Lord. But we don't do it in our own strength. We do it because we believe You 
and you credit to us as righteousness. Take a minute and speak to the Lord as